Uh, We are this morning in Romans 14, so if you can open your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, we have blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. You can use one of those. You can turn those Bibles to page 948. That'll bring you to uh, Romans 14. Before we start talking about the text and looking at uh, the message here, I do have an announcement. So we're going to, and I posted this on the table as well, just so that you're aware, uh, we're going to do a study in Revelation in our growth groups. We're going to study through the book of Revelation. We'll actually take the entire year to do it. Um, So there's uh, quite a few studies in here. And there is a cost this time, though, for the book. So it's a small cost. And I was able to secure 48 of these books. I got them all that I could get at a little bit cheaper price. So you can get them if you buy them. They're at the back table. Uh, there's 48 of them, and so you can get them for $7.50 apiece. Once they're gone, then I'm going to take uh, pre-orders, uh, prepaid orders, and those will they'll be $9 because that's the regular price. So if you want to save a, a buck fifty. Uh, or $3 for a couple, get them now. Or if you just want to get your book now, take the opportunity to get it after the service. If you're not part of a growth group, then let us, and you want to be, talk to us, and we'd love to plug you into one of our growth groups. They're available on uh, various nights of the week. We meet twice a month, January through May, and then also September through November, okay? You excited about the study of Revelation? I think it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It'll be a good study. It'll be helpful to you, I believe, especially with everything going on in our world, for you to get a biblical understanding. Uh, just to, you know, quickly, I can just say this, Revelation, guess what? We win. You know, see, that's it. That's it, basically. Jesus wins. We win. That's the story. Uh, Jesus Christ is the exalted king, and he will win. So, all right, let's do this. Let me, let me ask you a question first. I'll start off, and I'm, I'm feeling a little slow this morning. How about you? No, I should have drank a cup of coffee. I really should have. But I know it'll, I'll start going here in a second. But let me ask you something. Do you, do you stop and think about how your actions, your actions might impact or affect your um, brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that a regular thing that you do? I just want you to consider that for a second. Do you think about how what you do might impact your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or to say it another way, is their spiritual well-being a concern for you? Is it a concern for you? Uh, if you're walking in love, that love will impact your behavior, and that love will cause you to stop and consider how what you do or what you don't do might impact your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether positively or negatively. You know, uh, biblical love and self-centeredness, they, they oppose one another, right? They oppose one another. Remember, I've given you a definition of biblical love. That is that self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. It's, it's direct opposite of self-centeredness. But guess what? Uh, we tend to all be, to one degree or another, and sometimes more, more than at other times, self-centered. Right? So if we're being honest, if we're being honest, if we're not denying the truth, we are, uh, by nature, because of our sin nature, we are self-centered people. It's, 
It's really the love of God and the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us, that begins to transform us and causes us to look outside of ourselves and, and look away from ourselves and to begin to look to others and to care for them and to, and to love on them. Um, worldly love, and I think this is where we get confused, worldly love and self-centeredness are good friends. So biblical love and self-centeredness are opposed to one another, but worldly love and self-centeredness are good friends. And I, and I think because we're living in the world, we allow the definition of love that the world has to become our definition of love. So for example, if I say, I love ice cream, I love ice cream, right? Have you ever said that? By that I mean, I like the way ice cream makes me feel. Um, I love going to church. Sometimes what that means for people is they like the way the church makes them feel. So if on any given Sunday they don't like the way the church makes them feel anymore, they don't love the church anymore. That's not biblical love. And the same thing happens between spouses, couples. I, I love you. I love you too. And by that what they mean is I really like the way you make me feel. You satisfy me. It's still self-centered. It's still focused on self. And so as soon as the other person no longer makes you feel good, I guess you don't love them anymore. Huh? That's not biblical love. And so when I apply that to the body of Christ, yeah, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ as long as they don't tick me off. Or as long as they don't require me to sacrifice anything or to give up anything. Yeah, I love them. I love them when they're doing for me. That's when I love. That's not biblical love. That's worldly love, my friends. Biblical love, self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself and giving itself away and seeking not my good but the highest good of you, of the one next to you. Huh? So that's all uh, just introduction. I'm just trying to prepare you for this section here. And if we are biblically loving one another, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, in certain areas, we're going to defer, defer to one another. I've mentioned this word before as we were studying through this passage. Uh, defer, by that I don't mean postpone. That's one definition of defer. That's not the definition I'm talking about. I'm talking about give way to somebody else's judgment, opinion, wishes, or action. That's the definition I'm talking about. Give way to somebody else's opinion, wishes, or action, or judgment. Defer, which means that I, I have to not demand that things be my way, but give way to the other person. Okay? Deference, you get it? So I see often in marriage counseling, I see this is like a big issue. Two couples, one of the reasons they're having so many troubles is they are unwilling to defer to one another. It has to be her way. It has to be his way. Whatever the issue is, they're just unwilling. Well, that happens inside the church too. People are unwilling. It has to be this way. It has to be my way. Unwilling to defer. That's not love. That's not love. So are you ready now to look at the text? You're like, what does this have to do with the text? You'll see. All right, we're just going to look at first read through the first 12 verses because we've been in this. And by the way, we're going to look at the next section, but we're not going to finish it either. We're going to come back to it again next week. So uh, you should all be here, and you should all be here very early because New Year's Eve is not on Saturday. And so do that. Come early and get the next part because it will be important. But let me read verses 1 through 12 quickly. 
And then I just want to do some quick review to catch you up, and then we'll pick up verses 13 through 23. Paul says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, I can't say all that has been said, obviously, but let me do a little bit of review of that section, just to bring us up to speed and and then prepare us for 13 through 23, which is what we're looking at today. Uh, Really, Paul here is addressing a threat to the unity of the church. And I feel like this is often what pastors are spending their time doing, really, because they're concerned. They don't want to see the church uh, or those in the church rip each other apart. And because uh, we are not yet perfected, we still often allow sin to dominate in our lives, and we wound each other, we hurt each other, we damage one another, we treat each other in ways that we should not treat each other. And so here's another situation Paul is calling attention to it because if he doesn't, if it goes unchecked, it it could destroy the church in Rome. So there's a threat. Well, what is the threat? Well, he talks about these, uh, these weak and strong Christians. And as we move through the text here, you didn't see the word strong, but it comes up in 15.1, and in comparison to weak, we know there's this other group, the strong Christians. But he talks about these weak Christians, these strong Christians. They have basically different religious convictions and practices uh, concerning non-essential issues. So food and days, whether they can eat this or not eat this, or whether they celebrate this day as holy or they don't celebrate this day as holy. And the Apostle Paul actually refers to the weak as weak in faith. And I explained to you that that means that they're not yet able to embrace or accept their full liberty that they have in Jesus Christ. So, just as a way of reminder, I believe the weak here are the Jewish element of the church, predominantly. They lived under the Mosaic Law. Under the Mosaic Law, there were certain rules and regulations, certain commands, certain things they had to do, certain foods they could not eat, or they had to eat foods prepared in a certain way. There were certain days, many days that they celebrated as holy, and so on and so forth. Now, Christians are no longer under the law. So these Jews were no longer under the Mosaic Law, but they had been for a very long time. And so they're finding it very difficult to, for instance, eat something that 
previously the law had said they could not eat, okay? Or not celebrate a day that they had been celebrating for all this long history and period of time. And so under the New Testament, under Jesus Christ, there's no requirement laid on Christians to do these things. And, but these other folks, these Jewish Christians, they've always done it this way. They, they've always practiced these things. They've always followed this pattern. And so they're having a hard time, A, not just giving it up, but they're having a hard time with the Gentile Christians who are not observing these things. And they don't have to observe these things because they're not under the law, nor do they feel compelled to in any way because they never did prior. They didn't live as Jews. Okay? So, Paul needs to address that because there's this dissension kind of in the church, this division now. The strong, he really comes right at the strong in the beginning. He says the strong are to welcome the weak into the fellowship. Because the strong were predominant, they were basically in the majority at this point historically in the church in Rome. They would have made up the majority of the church. The, the weak, uh, the Jewish Christians would have been a smaller group. So he speaks to the strong, welcome the weak into fellowship. And not, not so that you can belittle them about their practices. In other words, not so that you can bring them in and say, you guys, don't you get it? You're so foolish. Why are you still holding on to those old traditions? You don't have to keep doing that. You're ridiculous. You should live like we live. We're free in Christ. We're not under the law. We don't have to do that stuff. He's saying, don't do that. Just welcome them in. Embrace them. Even in their weakness, bring them in. Accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You should do that because God has accepted them. And really, in the context, he means both Jew and Gentile because the Jews, also the weak, were looking down on the Gentiles. How dare they not comply with our way of life? How dare they eat that pork? Seriously, it's, it's as simple as that. Or, or eat that food that not, has not been made according to the law or kosher. How dare they do that? I can't believe that. What is wrong with them? Right? And so he says, you guys got to stop it. This, these are non-essential issues. These are not matters of sin. These are things that do not ultimately matter, and you're, you're attacking one another, condemning one another. Stop it. He goes on to talk about the fact that the weak and the strong, they have the same master. Again, he's, he's, he's pleading with them, and pointing out theologically why they shouldn't be doing these things, acting the way they are towards one another. So he says, listen, you both have the same master, the same Lord, and so each one must live for him to please him, and they will have to answer to him for their lives and not to other Christians. Ultimately, they have to please the Lord, and so the weak are doing what they're doing in honor of the Lord. They believe it's pleasing the Lord, so they're going to answer to him for their lives. And the Gentiles are doing what they're doing because they believe it's in honor of the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord, exercising their liberty and freedom in Christ. You're going to answer the Lord ultimately. He's the judge. So stop trying to take his role, church. That's what he's saying. Stop playing judge in these people's lives. Don't worry. God will judge them for their lives. Let him do it. He does it very well. He does it perfectly. It's the Lord's right, not ours. So that is some of what we've talked about in the first section here. Now, 
This is really a, this is, I really wanted to get here to this 13 through 23. Um, the heading that you'll find in Bibles, some Bibles above, they'll put a heading above a section, and they basically it's a summary what they think this section means. Okay? In the ESV, the heading just reads, Do not cause another to stumble. Do not cause another to stumble. That's the 13 through 23. So he's still, it's the same thing we're talking about here, the weak and the strong, and it just says that. That's good. That's a good heading. Another one says, the NET says, this is exhortation for the strong not to destroy the weak. The strong not to destroy the weak. Also good. The New King James has this heading, and it's just the law of love. The law of love. These are all good headings. These are all good headings. Paul will bring up the issue of love. He'll bring up the matter of love. And I'm going to tell you that it really is, that really is the crux of the problem. If these Jews and Gentiles were truly loving one another, biblically loving one another, this would have not been an issue. It's their lack of love that's really leading to these problems. And I'm not just going to tell you this, a lack of love in any church that really, I think, leads to most of its problems. Really, most of the time, that's what it is. It's a lack of love. The same thing in marriages, same thing in relationships. It's a lack of biblical love. You know, John thirteen thirty five says this. You guys know this passage. This is Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are my followers, that you are learners of me. How? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. And again, not that superficial self-centered, worldly love. No, but that sacrificial, self-giving, Jesus kind of love. The one that gives itself away for the good of someone else. The one that's willing to sacrifice anything for the good of someone else. So that's how people will know, beloved. So let's look at Romans 14, 13 through 23 now. Let's read it. And then we'll get into it. Verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, after he's just said what he said in the first 12 verses, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, in the previous section, verses 1 through 12, the Apostle Paul addresses both the weak and the strong believer in the church. And again, just just to reiterate, the strong believer is the one that truly has embraced his freedom, his liberties in Christ, and all that that means, especially in the case of freedom from the law, the Mosaic law. And the weak is struggling uh, to to do that very thing. They're still kind of holding on to these traditions and these, this way of life that they had for so long under the Mosaic law. So Paul addresses, like I said, both the weak and the strong, but in this section I want to tell you so that you understand it rightly, he is primarily speaking to the strong now. He turns to the strong. He's laying on them a responsibility in this particular situation. And I've said this before, but don't get lost in the fact that he's talking about eating meat and not eating meat and drinking wine or particular days and go, ah, we don't have really those issues. Not really, we don't. We're not Jewish and Gentiles. We're not in the same historical context. Um, try to, we're going to draw from it principles and try to see really the, the issue here is really a, a lack of love and then how we can take some of these issues and maybe apply them to current day events and, or current issues. But don't get caught up in that. Oh, this doesn't apply to me. It certainly applies to us. It certainly does. I'll try to point that out as we go. So, Paul's words here are directed to the strong believer. So, beginning with verse 13 in the first half of it, Paul sums up what he has said in verses 1 through 12. He sums it all up with the words, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That is, the weak and the strong must stop standing in judgment over one another or condemning one another over their respective practices concerning food and days. Practices that were not sinful. Just remember that too. We're not talking about sinful matters. These were non-essential matters, practices that could be labeled secondary issues, non-essential. And they're, they're getting all worked up about these issues. They're making them. They're making them primary issues or essential matters by saying, I'm not, I don't want to fellowship with you because you eat this. Or I don't want to fellowship with you because you don't eat this. Real, are you serious? You see? That's what's going on. And then in the latter part of verse 13, Paul turns to the strong now and says, rather than passing judgment on one another, okay, decide or determine to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, I've been thinking a lot about that passage because I think it's been taken badly out of context and applied to so many situations that it probably shouldn't be applied to. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to get at what really Paul is talking about there. And we're going to come back to Paul's exhortation, but I want to point something out to you that you don't see in your English translation. It's a play on the words that Paul uh, uses here that is, you can see it in the Greek sentence. So look back at the text, look at that verse there, uh, 13. The words, you see the words in the ESV, pass judgment on, those words, pass judgment on, that's one Greek word, okay? And then you see, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, decide, do you see that word? Okay, that's a Greek word. Those are both a translation of the same Greek word, the same Greek word, that can have uh, more than one meaning. 
So listen, it basically means this. It, the Greek word means to decide either mentally, okay? It has two meanings. Either mentally, so that means determine or come to a conclusion, all right? Or it can mean to decide judicial, judicially, <laughs> judicially, so to condemn or judge as guilty, okay? So Paul, he takes that same word and he's saying, hey, he's, he's, he's basically kind of making a little stab. Rather than deciding to condemn your brothers and sisters, why don't you decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance or obstacle, another translation, in their way? Okay? Just wanted to point that out to you. So he's just making a play on words to, to really draw their attention to the matter here and to rebuke them and to rebuke them in a, in a pastoral way. Now, the Greek words Paul used translated stumbling block and hindrance in the ESV, in that verse, they're basically synonymous in their meaning. They basically have the same meaning. Both Greek words should be understood metaphorically as referring to something that can bring about spiritual ruin or downfall. Spiritual ruin or downfall for the believer. So Paul is saying, in effect... Don't put some, decide not to put something in the way of a brother or sister that might cause them, spiritually speaking, to trip up and to fall and be injured or hurt. You with me so far? You with me so far? Yeah? Okay. Why might I want to decide to be careful about putting anything in the way of my brothers and sisters that might cause them, I want to be careful not to do that, that might cause them to trip up spiritually and be wounded, injured, to fall, to be hurt. Why might I, why might I do that? Because of love. Because of love. Because of biblical love. But if I'm, listen, if I'm focused on me and I'm self-centered, right, and I'm walking in self-centeredness, because we are self-centered. So when we're giving way to our self-centeredness, then I don't care about you and your... I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It's your problem if you trip over what I lay down. You see what I'm saying? You see, the issue is love, beloved. I mean, all of this is all of this. The background is love. The commands are rooted in love. The exhortations are founded in biblical love. Otherwise, why do it? It's love that motivates me to stop and to think, wait, I don't want to injure my brother or sister in any way, not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. And therefore, I hear the command and I heed it. Not because, oh, here's another rule I must obey. No, here's another rule I want to obey because I care about my brothers and sisters in Christ. You with me? And this is critical. It's, it's, it's the way we even approach these things. Otherwise, it becomes like a legalistic, oh, you better make sure you don't do something bad to hurt your brother and sister. That's wrong. But yes, that's true, but why? Why would, you, why would you go through the effort of making sure you're not going to hurt another brother or sister spiritually? Out of love. And love will drive it. It'll drive the command. It'll drive obedience to the command. Whereas anything else, if I'm just whipping on you, telling you, you know you shouldn't be doing that, you know you shouldn't be, you've got to pay attention to your actions and to your words, you're hurting your brothers and sisters, you'll be like, yeah, you're, you're right, it's bad, I need to pay attention. No! 
See, that doesn't work. That doesn't move you. But love, love will move you. Biblical love. Love empowered by the Holy Spirit that resides in you. Okay? All right. I'm trying. So I just lost where I was. But anyway. Um, okay, so. People come, people, when they visit a summit, repeatedly, repeatedly, I hear them, uh, one of their comments is how loving, uh, and by that they mean how embracing, how warm, how welcoming this body is. So I'm not, I'm not preaching because, because I'm on you, because I think you're not loving. Uh, I'm preaching because we got to be careful we gotta, we got to love and we got to love more. we got to pursue love to the uttermost, okay? At any point, at any point, we're not out of the woods. We're not out of danger. At any point, our self-centeredness, we could give way to that and we could begin to rip each other apart, not care for one another, not really love on one another. And even, you know, at any given time, there's probably that going on a little bit here or there. You know what I mean? And if it's not even in the body, it may be in your home, okay? So, yeah. That's why I'm bringing the exhortation, because it's here. You know, we don't, we don't have this discord that they had going on, but we could. It could be a different set of circumstances, but we could. And why would we have it? Because we fail to love one another biblically. You with me? And beloved, I, I want to see this church thrive. I, I want to die with a, a church planted in Fontana that is hopefully planting other churches. And so if we don't, if we don't, listen to these these words these scriptures if we don't live in love there's a good chance beloved we won't make it i'm just telling you this is where satan comes in and he destroys from the inside he destroys from the inside so we're not going to let it happen right we're not going to we're going to repent of our selfishness and our self-centeredness and we're going to live by the power of the holy spirit in love and we're going to apply these scriptures in that vein okay so here we go back to this so, when Paul gave his exhortation to the strong, when he did this, and it was to the strong, don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brothers. He's speaking to them, okay, in the context. So, it would go to anybody, but he's speaking specifically to the strong here. And so, he's thinking about something specific when he says stumbling block or hindrance, something that might cause the spiritual downfall of the weak believer, and um, the context will demonstrate that to us. And I just want to make that point because this idea of stumbling block or obstacle or something that would cause uh, the spiritual downfall of a believer, it has a context. I see it ripped out of its context and just applied to every situation. I'm not comfortable with that. So as an example, let me just give you one. Someone will say, hey, listen, um, I, as a woman, have a conviction that uh, women shouldn't wear pants because it's not m- modest or it's not appropriate for a woman to wear pants, okay? And so she'll come uh, to the lady, she's wearing a dress, obviously, and so she comes to the lady wearing pants and says, this is my conviction, and, and by you wearing pants, uh, you are causing... For me, a stum- you're putting a stumbling block in my way, a hindrance that's going to lead to my spiritual downfall. Really? That's, 
this is the, they go to this passage, they, they use it in support of whipping the other folks into line. So then the woman, I guess if that's the case, then any woman could come in here. If, if, that's what this mean, if that's what this is really all about, then anybody who has that conviction here could come in here and just start, you know, they'd, first they come over to my wife, hey, you have pants on. And yes, she does normally wear a dress, but that's not because she has a conviction that she must wear a dress. I just like her in dresses, and I pick her clothes, so... <laughs> but she's wearing pants today, right? So can you imagine this woman comes over and says, hey, uh, you're causing me to stumble by wearing those pants. I, I've heard it this way, too. You can't wear pants because you're causing the men in the church to stumble. So you have to wear a dress. And Paul tells us, don't do anything. Don't do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. See, that, well, I'm just going to tell you, that is not what Paul's talking about, okay? He's not. He's not. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble because there's a lot of women here in pants, and I'm sure there's someone in here that would prefer to wear dresses, but seriously, so if a, if a, if a man sees another woman in pants, and because he might have lustful thoughts seeing her in pants, then no one can wear pants because I'm causing him to stumble. Please, men don't need pants to have lustful thoughts. I'm just going to tell you that right now. They don't. They don't, okay? They can be all dressed up and they can still lust. Just eyes. That's enough for a guy sometimes. That's it, okay? So I just want to tell you up front, that's not what this is about. I hope you'll be able to see it when we work through it. And please come back next week because so much time here is gone already. So uh, verse now, so let's continue to move through the passage. Verse 14, Paul goes on to say now, he kind of just stops. He, he pulls away just for a second to add this. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Hmm. That's interesting. Paul pauses to affirm what the strong believer in Rome already embraced, okay? He's speaking to the strong. So he stops. He says, listen, I know nothing's unclean in itself, right? And Paul included himself with the strong in chapter 15, verse 1. So he's part of that group. He, he recognizes that he's no longer under the Mosaic law, it's that nothing, and by the way, that nothing, again, in context, it's food. He's talking about food. So that no food is unclean. In fact, the NIV just adds the word food trying to help you understand the context. It says that no food is unclean in itself. So now, as I've said before, the Greek word, just to remind you, translated unclean became a way of describing food that was, under the Mosaic law, the old covenant, prohibited by God from being eaten by his people, the Jewish people. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, or the mediator of the new covenant, the believer in Jesus was no longer obligated to abide by the dietary regulations or rules of the Mosaic law that are recorded for us in the Old Testament. And why? Because the Christian, the one who has embraced Christ, does not live under the Mosaic law. Hello, right? Amen? You do not live under the Mosaic law but rather under and by the power of God's grace. God's grace. 
Christians are not a part of the old covenant, but the new. And so they are free from the Mosaic law as a rule of life, which Paul has already established in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 4. The Christian, therefore, has liberty, the freedom to eat whatever he wants. Okay? For him, there is no restriction placed upon him by God concerning what he may eat. Now, your doctor may place restrictions on you concerning what you may eat, but that is not a religious consideration. It's a health thing. Your wife may place restrictions on you for who knows why, you know, just because she likes to do that. I don't know, but that has nothing to do It's not a religious situation. So just as Paul told Timothy in the New Testament, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4. So Paul's just affirming the truth. Okay? But now listen, while that is certainly true, Paul adds this. (laughs) This is what's weird. That it is unclean, though, the food, for anyone who thinks it unclean. Huh? What? So is Paul saying that truth is relative? Someone should say no. No. Yeah, that's no. Truth is not relative. Basically, that truth is whatever someone thinks it is. Is that what he's doing? Is he setting that principle up? No, there's a context here. We're talking about food, right? He's not saying, hey, your truth may not be my truth, and, but whatever, our truth, we can all decide what's true and not true. That's not what he's doing. So what is Paul getting at then? Well, I'm glad you asked. Beloved, Paul is referring to the believer's conscience, to the believer's conscience in this matter, okay? And I'm going to try to explain this a little, but the bottom line is this, that the weak believer's conscience informs him that it is unclean, okay? And if, if that's what's going on, and that is what was going on, then it is effectively unclean, forbidden by God, and therefore off limits to him. He cannot partake. That is not in good conscience, not without going against his conscience, which is, by the way, wrong for him to do. It is sin. It is sin. You know, where do you get all that, Jeremy? I'm glad you asked that too. And that is found later on, the last part of this section. So we're going to jump there, and then we'll jump back. Okay? We'll see how far we get. So just let your eyes glance down to chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. This is a matter of the conscience. I know nothing's unclean, but to him to who it is unclean, it is unclean. <laughs> So, verse 22, Paul says this, and we'll, I'll explain it, and hopefully then it'll all make sense to you. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is, what? Sin. So let me elaborate a little bit on verse 22 by putting it this way. Okay, this is kind of what I think Paul's getting at. So it would be something like this. Listen, strong. 
speaking to those strong Christians who know their liberties in Christ and are exercising them, your faith, your faith, and he's not talking about the essential Christian faith. So he's not saying, hey, keep, your, keep the gospel to yourself. Don't tell anybody. He's obviously not saying that, right? Okay, just between you and nobody else. No, of course not. That would contradict everything else he said. No, he's talking about their conviction before God that they have concerning these non-essential matters about food and days. That's the context. It's the same way he used faith in verse 1. So it's their conviction. They know that it's okay for them to eat this food that people, the Jews, could not previously under the old covenant, the Mosaic law. They can now because they're not under the law. They know that the days that were subscribed to the Jews to celebrate and worship as holy are no longer a requirement. And so they esteem all days alike. They know they have that freedom. So Paul is saying, keep that to yourself. Now, what does he mean? He means don't go... Remember the context. Remember what's happening. Remember the conflict that's going on that Paul's having to address. He's not addressing something that might happen. He's addressing a real problem right now going on in the church. So stop shoving those convictions, or don't go around trying to shove those convictions about these matters, your convictions, down your weak brother's throat or putting them in their face. Rather, keep them between yourself and God. That's what he means. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying that then there would be a difference between their private conviction and their public behavior. Just because they know that they have the freedom to do this doesn't mean that they, in public, make that so evident to their weak brothers and sisters in Christ. Or, or more than that, try to kind of push it down their throats. Okay. So the NIV translates that section like this. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. These things in the context is these, are these non-essential matters concerning the days and the food. Are you with me? Are you with me? Context is so critical here. Because I'm telling you, people will try to import all kinds of other things into this particular situation that I don't think should be there, that don't really fit. So one writer, now this is helpful, one writer adds this. Paul is, quote, not necessarily requiring strong believers never to mention their views on these matters or to speak of their sense of freedom before others. As the context suggests, the silence Paul requires is related to the need to avoid putting a stumbling block in the way of the weak. This will mean that the strong are not to brag about their convictions before the weak, and especially that they are not to propagandize the weak. So like kind of do a public promotion, you know, uh, to, to promote their particular convictions. So now why, so basically, why would, why would the strong refrain from trying to um, push their convictions in these matters upon the weak? Why would they? Well, because we're going to get to it. They don't want to be a stumbling block to them. But again, we're right back where we started. It's because of love. It means that they're going to have to uh, restrain themselves a little bit, restrain their liberty, restrain their freedom a little bit. They're going to choose to do it. Why? Because someone told them, if you don't, you're in trouble? No, because of love. 
because they love their weak brothers and sisters in Christ that are really struggling right now as through this transition from the old covenant into the new covenant, and they want to embrace them and help them through that process, okay? But remember, it also doesn't mean that they're never going to talk about it. They're never going to talk about it, right? Because if I love my weak brothers and sisters in Christ, I want them eventually to experience the same freedoms that I have, the same liberties that I have in Christ. I want them to know them. I want them to embrace them because they're for our good. So you don't have to be freaked out about eating that pork as an example. But I'm not going to, that's not something I'm just going to beat you into a pulp and get you to comply by, hey, You should try this hot dog, man. It's excellent as I shove it into your face. That's kind of what was going on. I mean, it probably wasn't a hot dog, but you understand what I'm saying. That there's this like, you know what? You know, you should be free like I'm free. That kind of attitude. It's unloving. It's uncaring. They're hurting. Their conscience is like, "I, I can't do that, and I can't believe you're doing that. Okay? So... Let's look at 20, let's move through this section here, this last part. So then 22b, there's second, and we're still in this 22, 23. Then he goes on to say, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. All right, what is, what is he talking about? It's the conscience. Listen. One translation of the Bible puts verse 22b like this. It just says this, Happy is the person who does not feel guilty when he does something he judges is right. So he's talking to the strong. The strong Christian in Rome had no reservations about what they could and could not eat. And so they could eat anything without the feeling of having done something wrong before God. Their conscience was good before God. One commentator just says this, the same thing. He says, the strong Christian is blessed because his conscience approves of his eating everything so he can follow his conscience without any guilt feelings. Fantastic! But in contrast to the strong, the weak had doubts about what they could and could not eat. Why? I've told you, but let me say it again because of their long and strongly held tradition derived from the Mosaic Law, a tradition that was basic to their own identity as God's people. The two went hand in hand. The diet of Jews identified them as the Jewish people. It was unique. It was different from all the nations around them. So were the celebrations of these particular days. And it was a tradition that their conscience kept referencing and informing them about. Hey, conscience says, that's not okay. That's not okay. We don't do that. We don't eat that food. You see? And Paul says, in that case, if they eat, they are condemned. If they eat, they are condemned. I believe this means by their conscience. If they eat, they stand condemned by their violated conscience. Have you ever had your conscience condemn you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it says, you know, that was wrong. That was bad. How's that feel? Fantastic, wonderful. It feels wonderful? No, no. It can be devastating as it continues to just pound away at you. 
okay? But why are the doubtful condemned if they eat? Paul explains, because the eating is not from faith. Listen, this is a, this is a, you're learning something about conscience. Those who doubt do not have an assurance that what they are doing is legitimate or okay with God, and therefore they feel guilty before God. The person who eats then goes against their conscience, and we know that is never okay to do because Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 23 that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, is sin. So one writer says this, what Paul here labels sin is any act that does not match our sincerely held convictions about what our Christian faith allows us to do and prohibits us from doing. Violation of the dictates of the conscience, even when the conscience does not conform perfectly with God's will, is sinful is sinful. And that was the matter here. It did not. Their conscience, what, their conscience needed to be informed. They needed some new information. But until they, they needed to embrace that new information, but until they did that, their conscience was still saying, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. And Paul makes clear here, do not go against your conscience. Very dangerous, beloved. Another writer says, the sin that Paul talks about is not the act, but the disregard for what we know or suspect God wants. Beloved, if your conscience is telling you this is not what God wants you to do, is it okay to do it anyway? It is not. It is never a good idea because then you train your mind, you train your own heart to go against conscience. This thing is a gift that God has given you. So as your mind becomes more and more filled with the word of God, Your conscience then, and working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, brings these things to bear upon your mind and your heart, and your conscience says, yes, I give approval, or it says, no. And so you should be listening to it, never going against it. You may need to be further informed. You need to be more educated concerning what it is that God prohibits and what he does not prohibit. But what you never do is go against conscience. That's what Paul's saying. Another writer says this, an act performed against the voice of conscience can never be right. Never. Okay? So the implication is this. Now let's bring this all together. That since it is wrong to go against your conscience, and since those who doubt but eat anyway stand condemned by their conscience and suffer as a result of feeling guilty before God, Listen here, strong Christian. That's what he's saying here. Listen. Don't push, urge, or encourage your weaker brother, either by your words or your actions, to violate or go against their conscience. Huh? So, to apply that back to that weird example I gave you, let it, let's just say a particular person had a conviction. Maybe they grew up in a tradition, a religious tradition, that says women don't wear pants. They're around, okay? Not here in California for sure, but they're around. Are you familiar with it? Do you, does anyone know what I'm talking about? You think I'm crazy. I am not crazy. I am a little, but I'm not about this. There, that, is that, there is, that is the position of some religious folks. Women should not wear pants, right? 
in her case, I would not buy her pants for Christmas. I would not buy her pants, nor would I, you know, talk about or, you know, rub up against her and say, man, you should be wearing pants. That's what you should be wearing. You'd feel a lot more comfortable and a lot warmer in this cold weather than in that dress. Those kind of things. No, something else needs to happen, but I need to be patient with this because there is no requirement in the scriptures that women wear pants. Hello? Because if there is, then a lot of you are sinning right now. There's no requirement, but some, through religious tradition, have a conviction that women shouldn't wear pants and so on and so forth, okay? But do women have the liberty to wear pants? Absolutely. They do! You're thinking, uh, you don't care about that, but I'm saying, that's fine. We'll get to stuff you maybe care about here in a second. So, um, one writer adds this, the strong he's suggesting, listen, this is, this is it. The strong, Paul is suggesting, should not force the weak to eat meat. And that's why I like to keep it back to the historical context, because it makes more sense than trying to drag all these other examples in, which start to get weird. Or drink wine or ignore the Sabbath, when the weak are not yet convinced that their faith in Christ allows them to do so. First, their faith must be strengthened, their consciences enlightened, and then they can follow the strong in exercising Christian liberty together. Leave it up for just a second. Do you see that? So it's not that I'm going to leave them in their weak state forever, but how I approach them is what this is all about. I'm not going to broad beat them. I'm not going to slap them up against the face with these liberties. I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to allow the Lord to work on them. We're going to continue to teach them what the Scriptures say, and they'll discover their freedom in Christ and become, become acceptable fully of it. And then... When their conscience is talking to them, it will resource that new information and it will say, you're right, you are free to do these things, it's good, it's okay, and they'll be able to do it in good conscience. But what I don't want to do is force someone into a position where they now, because of pressure, go against their conscience. Again, we're not talking about matters of sin. Hello, listen. We've got to keep that in mind. We're talking about non-essential issues. So, for instance, if someone said, well, um, listen, uh, according to my conscience, um, I must love the person that I'm with even though I'm not married to them because it's right to love. And by that, I mean have physical interaction. And so you, you can't tell me not to love them physically, Right? Because you're telling me then to go against my conscience. Okay. See, time out. You just want to rip this stuff out of context. That's a sin issue. That's a clear sin issue. Thou shalt not fornicate. Right? So it's clear. So let me inform you because your conscience is really messed up here bad. If that's the case. If that's really the case or you're not just making an excuse for trying to justify what you're doing. You got me? So you've got to keep the context. If it's a sin issue, yes, I'll come to the person and say, no, no, no. I'm telling you right now, you can't do this. But these issues are non-sin issues. They're non-essential issues. They're secondary matters that Paul is addressing. In that case, don't go beating up on your brother and sister in Christ. And it's reasonable. It's reasonable that they would have these convictions. They lived under the law of God for all this time. 
And he's the one who gave them these particular exhortations and commands. And yeah, they're struggling. So chill out. Be patient with them. Love them. And don't do anything that'll put them in a situation where they might violate or be pushed to violate their conscience and then experience all the pain and the guilt and and the downfall of that. That is what the stumbling block is that Paul's referring to or the hindrance. Don't do it, okay? So, the weak need to mature. They need to grow up, but let the Spirit of God do His work in them. Love them. Be willing even to make sacrifices for them. How? By choosing even at times not to exercise your liberties or to brag about your liberties or to flaunt your liberties in Christ. You with me? Yeah. So, we have to stop there. We have to stop there. Because we're out of time. So I'm just going to discipline myself to do that instead of pushing forward. Um... Like I said, applying this is, is tricky. But just trying to bring the context to you so you can say this does apply, this does apply. I mean, look, bottom line is you don't want to ruin your brothers and sisters in Christ. In this case, that's exactly what the strong were doing um, by kind of forcing their freedom down their throat, not giving a chance for God to work in their lives and to bring them to a place where they could in good conscience embrace their freedom, their liberties, in the sense of being able to eat whatever it is they wanted to eat and, the, and things of that nature. Uh, interesting enough, Christmas just passed, and Indiana, I don't know if you saw this, they, they went ahead and abolished a law that was on the books. And in many states, I don't believe so in California at all, anywhere, but in many states there's still blue laws. You've heard of these laws where... You can't buy alcohol or whatever on particular days, especially on Sunday. Well, in Indiana, not only could you not buy alcohol on Sunday, but you couldn't buy it on Christmas. So they just abolished it. People are really upset. Well, some people are really upset. So now you can get alcohol on Christmas. And the reason the the governor went ahead and got rid of it, that one, they still can't do it on Sunday, is uh, he was fine with the law. Because he figures if anybody wants alcohol on Christmas, they can just buy it on Christmas Eve. That's how ridiculous these things are. I'm just going to tell you right now. They're so, but the, the, the reason why we don't let people buy alcohol on Christmas, they say, is because Christmas is holy. And it would be unholy to buy alcohol. Okay, that's just not true. That's just not true. But that is the religious convictions of some folks. So he, he abolishes the law. And the reason he did is because... While people could buy alcohol on Christmas Eve and enjoy it on Christmas, if that be their choice, um, people in restaurants were going to have a Christmas dinner and they just wanted a glass of wine with their Christmas dinner and they couldn't get it. And so for that reason, he, he did away with the law. So I, I read some of the comments here. Many people have vowed not to buy or sell alcohol on Christmas, they said in response to this, out of deference, even though he passed the law, out of deference to tradition, religious beliefs, or a determination that in a culturally conservative state, some days ought to be kept sacred. (laughs) Um, Christmas is a holy day. And then another guy comments and says, I think folks should pay their maker some homage and not shop for liquor. Now, 
Listen, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that's a weak position. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and make that categorically. That's, weak, that's a weak position. Uh, a person, a Christian, has liberty to purchase alcohol on Christmas. This is ridiculous. This is a, certainly a secondary issue. What they don't have liberty to do is get drunk, beloved. All right? They don't have that liberty. We're not free to get drunk. We're not free to sin. But to purchase alcohol on Christmas? So this weak person, let's say he, he came in, I would, in this case, let's say these, these folks, I was aware of them and I had contact with them and they were in the body of Christ. I certainly, if I was going to pick up a bottle of wine on Christmas, I certainly wouldn't uh, bring them with me uh, to pick up the bottle of wine. I'm just, I'm trying to try to apply it in some way. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say, I have the right, you're, yeah, you've got a problem, man, because this is ridiculous that you think that way. That's arrogance. That's kind of like just, you know, putting on them. That's kind of what the strong were doing. You're ridiculous. We're going to, when we get together, bring out the ham, bring out the sausage, man. Where is it? Where is that kind of thing? And, and the weak are just going, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're doing that. And, and then, but they're doing it. I don't know. Maybe we should do it. And Boom, then all of a sudden they're going against their conscience. They feel condemned. They are condemned by their conscience. They're sinning because they went against their conscience. They are kind of in a spiritual uh, spiral downwards now because of that, feeling guilt and maybe depression and anxiety because they've sinned, because they went against their conscience and they're being condemned. You see all that? I don't want to do all that. I don't want my brother and sister to go through that. On the other hand, I do eventually want them to understand that they have freedom. But that'll take time. That'll take patience. That'll take relying on the Holy Spirit to work inside of their hearts and their minds through his word as they receive that. You understand? Just, if we could just get that. It's that approach that, that Paul's going after. Not so much the issue. It's their approach to the issue. Was it in love or was it in some other way that was hurtful to the body of Christ? If it was in love, then these are the things in this particular example that they should be doing. This is what love would look like for the body of Christ, okay? So we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll go through it. But again, when you start to try to think about particular situations and scenarios, let love dominate the situation. Am I really loving my brother and sister in Christ? Am I doing what I can to make sure I don't uh, put things into their life or put stumbling blocks in their life that need not be there? Is this a secondary issue, one that doesn't matter? I'm not talking about sin then why am I trying to force myself on them? Why am I doing that? And maybe cause them to go against their conscience. I'll pray for them. I'll encourage them. I still embrace them. These things should not distinguish us or or separate us in the body of Christ. We are one in Christ. We are accepted by God. We should love one another. So anyway, just think through those things, all right? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your word. And Lord, this is a... um, a very powerful section of Scripture, as it all is, Father, of course it is. It's all your word. But uh, it can be revolutionizing in our lives just to even think about that. Many people don't even, Christians don't concern themselves with these things. They're not thinking about how what they do or what they don't do might, might negatively impact their brothers and sisters. Uh, Father, I hope at least that, it would, it would open our eyes to that. These are things we should be concerned about. Why? Because of love. Because of love. They will know us by our love for one another. May that be true of Summit Bible Church. In Jesus' name, amen.